been through a couple times, but uh, John 1 is the first place you'll need to go to. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you again for your son, Jesus Christ. We thank you that you are greater than everything that song spoke about. Lord, we pray that as we uh, open your word and we see more about your son, Lord, we pray that you would help us to be more like him. Lord, I pray that you would indeed give us the capacity to love others the way that you've loved us. And so, God, as we continue through this series, I pray that you would um, open our eyes to what your word says. Lord, I pray today especially that you would feed your people, and I pray that you would use me to do it. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, we've been working our way through a series uh, that we're entitling Christian, and we're looking at uh, what is a Christian. And what we've discovered is that the word Christian uh, is not a word that Jesus followers ever used to describe themselves. We've, we've found out that the word Christian is a used that outside is a word that was used by outsiders to describe a group of Jesus followers. And so Jesus never said, follow me and be Christians. He said, follow me and be my disciples. And so we've been talking that, uh, a disciple is a, uh, is a very painful word to use to describe Jesus followers. And the reason it's a painful word to use is because Jesus defined it so clearly and you can pick up your bible and you can see if you are actually being one of his disciples or not and we said that the word christian uh, and any derivative of the word christian is only used three times in the whole bible and it's not used in a way very becoming of the people it's describing it's used in a negative way describing those people and so if you want to be a christian uh, being a christian can be anything that you want it to be because it's not defined but if you want to lock into the word that Jesus used, which I think is an incredibly powerful word, uh, we talked about that that word is disciple. And so we've been in the book of John a lot, and I'm in John 13. You stay in John chapter 1, but Jesus says at the end, he huddles his guys around, and he says, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. And then he says, by this, by you loving each other the way that I've loved you, all men will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. And so the way that the world is going to know that we are truly Jesus followers is by the way that we love one another. Last week, we talked about uh, a very touchy subject of judging people. And we talked about that the Bible doesn't tell you uh, not to judge. The Bible tells you who to judge. And we talked about the difference between insiders and outsiders. Insiders being people who have confessed Christ and are actively following him. And outsiders being people who have not signed on to our whole belief system. And we talked about that it's the people who have signed on to be Jesus followers that we need to hold accountable. And the rest of the world, they haven't professed Christ or to be Christ followers. And so who are we to judge outsiders? And so I promised you last week that we would have a discussion this week about what's the balance when you're talking about judging. And, and I know everybody's uncomfortable whenever we say the word judging in church. But there's a balance here. And I want to talk to you about it. And I want to start in John chapter 1. Look at how the book of John starts. I just want to remind you who John was. John's the old guy at this point. He's the old disciple. He's the last disciple around. And so when Jesus was leaving the earth, he said, uh, I'm leaving, but I'm coming back. And so, you know, when somebody says, I'm leaving, but I'm coming back, they kind of expect you to come back in a, in a, in a, in a expedient fashion. And so, you know, they're expecting him to come back, you know, Thursday or Friday. Uh, and years go by. And John's the only disciple left. And they say, hey, John, it doesn't look like Jesus is coming back. And so why don't you write down all of these things that you've been sharing with us? And so John sits down to write the book of John. 
and he writes a, an account of Jesus' life, and he starts out like this. Listen to the way that he describes things. John chapter 1, verse 1. He says, In the beginning was the Word, and this is Jesus, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him, and apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. So Jesus is the start of everything, and he's the creator of anything. And then he'll go on in verses 4 through 13, and he'll say, this is what it looks like. Jesus is the author of all things, and it's as if God, Jesus, painted a picture. And so you have a blank canvas, and Jesus fills the picture. He fills it with people, he fills it with the world, and he makes this thing perfect. Right? That's all of Genesis 1. Right? God's created everything. And then after he creates everything and it's good, he himself steps into the picture. And he's interacting with the world that he created. And the world has rejected who he is and they don't even know who he is. And you go, wow, that is an absolute tragedy that Christ would paint this beautiful portrait called our world, step into it, and the very people he created reject him. That's the imagery he gives here. And then he says this. And this is how he describes Christ coming into our world and and being part of us. And this is in John chapter 1, verse 14. And he says, And the Word, that's Christ, became flesh and dwelt among us. And we saw his glory. Glory is of the only begotten from the Father. And so this this is John. Remember? John's an eyewitness. And he said, The Word, Jesus, dwelt among us. He's not talking about us in this room. He's talking about me and the guys. John and the guys. Christ became flesh and dwelt among them. And he says, we were there. Remember, this guy that wrote this book that we hold on to was an eyewitness. And he says, and the word became flesh and he dwelt among us. And then he says, and we saw his glory. Not we, we didn't see his glory. But John says, me and the guys, we saw his glory. You ever read about something in the newspaper? And it's pretty interesting. The reporter writes a good story about it. And then did you ever meet somebody who was actually there? And he can tell you eyewitness account of what happened. And the way he describes it is always different than the newspaper described it. And he can describe it with passion and with excitement because he was actually there and got to see it. That's John. And listen to what he says. He said, We beheld his glory. He dwelt among us. And we saw his glory. Glory is of the only begotten from the Father. And then listen to what he says in his introductory statements about Christ. Full of grace and truth. And so we're going to call truth, truth. And truth is also described as the law later. And so what's the balance then? between grace on one hand and truth on the other side. Go down to verse 16. And he says, For for of his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. And so, out of the fullness of God, we all have received grace upon grace upon grace upon grace. And so, your grace cup has been filled up through Christ becoming flesh and dwelling among us. And then he says, For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth were realized, or grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. And so before Christ, you had the law. The law was given through Moses, and the law fit nicely in a cute little box, right? There's the Ten Commandments, and then there's about 600 other things that Moses gave the people that they were to keep. And so you've got, you know, 610 roughly commandments to keep, right? Some of you are law people, right? You like the law, right? 
Some of you are grace people. You like grace. Don't worry about the law. Just give me grace. And John says the most important thing you need to know about Jesus Christ is that he was full of both of them. That he wasn't one and he wasn't the other, but he was both of them put together. And so if you had a cup of a cup of grace and a cup of the law and you poured them together you have a new concoction called grace and truth and that's who jesus was he wasn't a balance in between the two you see i like law when i'm preaching to you it's easy law is so easy right i you can come in here and i can show you what the bible says and i can tell you everything that you need to do when you walk out of here law 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 right right easy when someone's preaching to me, I like grace, 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 because grace is easy, right? But Jesus isn't just grace, and he isn't just the law. He's both of them in the same person. And so what this means is, preacher, what's the balance between grace and law? There isn't a balance. When Jesus came on any given situation, he came with a full measure of grace, and he came with a full measure of the law, and he brought grace and truth to every single situation that he encountered, and I'm going to show you what this looks like. And the problem is, is that this is messy. This is real messy. You see, the law is easy. We were talking in Sunday school uh, about an individual that lives in our town that likes the law. And every time you break the law, he's giving most of y'all tickets. <laughs> Every time you break the law, he's Johnny on the spot, and he's going to give you a ticket. There is zero grace. And then there's preachers that you like to watch on TV that aren't going to give you any law. They're only going to give you grace. And the interesting thing about Jesus is that he's the perfect combination of both of those things. And you say, well, we'll get to it, preacher. If you were to go to John chapter 4, flip over a couple pages, there's Jesus and a Samaritan woman. And so here's the scene. Jesus comes up to a well, and he's thirsty. And there's nobody at the well except for a Samaritan woman comes on the scene. And if you remember anything about the Samaritans, uh, the Jews didn't have anything to do with them because the Samaritans were somewhat of a cross race between uh, faithful Jews and the Assyrian people. They had kind of uh, interbred in captivity. I know that's not a way you describe people, but listen, that's kind of the way that it happened. They, they, uh, they married outside of the Jewish race, and it's a mixed race of people. And so the Jews say, mm, don't have anything to do with them. The law says we don't. And so now Jesus is at a well. A Samaritan woman walks up, and Jesus says, you know, I'm kind of thirsty. Uh, do you mind using that bucket you have and getting me some water out of this well? And the woman goes, wow, I'm a Samaritan woman, and you're a Jew. What are you doing talking to me? And he's like, hey, you know, what about, what about that drink? How about you give me a drink, and then we'll talk. And so he begins to talk to her, and he says, listen, if you knew who I was, you would have asked me for a drink, and I would have given you water that would have quenched the soul of your, quenched the thirst of your soul, and you never would thirst again. And she says, wow, give me that water. Give me the water that you're talking about. And Jesus says, okay, go to town and get your husband. Bring him back here, and I'll tell you about the water. And she says, sir, I don't have a husband. And Jesus says, you're right. You've had five husbands, and the man that you're with now isn't your husband. To which you go, whoa, Jesus, you can't do that. Like, you can't, you can't reach into the dark closet of someone's soul and bring up their past and hold that against them. You can't do that. 
And so what happens is that she goes back to town and she tells everyone in town that she's met the Messiah and they come back and meet Jesus. Because in the midst of their dialogue, she begins to tell Jesus what she knows about the Messiah. And Jesus says, you're exactly right. And what I want you to know is that the Messiah that you're talking about is standing in front of you right now. It's a good story. But you have grace. Grace from Jesus speaks to a Samaritan woman. The law says to the Samaritan woman, you've sinned. She says, I've heard about the Messiah. I don't know who he is. Grace from Jesus. She's the first person he tells that he's the Messiah. And the law says, lady, you're really bad with men. And you go, well, you can't say that. You can't say that. But listen, Jesus is both law and grace to this woman. And she meets Jesus. And grace doesn't just allow her to meet Jesus because this is a woman who probably has zero reputation in the town. Right? She's probably not going to be believed in anything that she said. But she goes back and she gets the people and they come and meet the Messiah too. And they learn who Jesus is. And then ultimately in the story, they're going to say, we used to believe based on what she told us. Now we believe because we've seen Jesus ourselves. And so grace not only goes and saves that woman, but grace redeems her and makes her honorable in the town. And the rest of the town gets saved through her. And you go, well, why couldn't Jesus just showed up and told that woman who he was and left all of that stuff aside? Because that's not what love does. Love doesn't deny reality of where things are. And so he comes to this woman, and he's full of grace and truth. And you go, but Jesus, why'd you have to bring up the sin stuff? Why couldn't it just all be good news? Because listen, you cannot be saved apart from dealing with sin. Anybody who's ever been saved by the grace of God has had to deal with sin their sin in some way shape or form it is impossible to receive grace without addressing sin we're going to show you even more uh you've got the guy named matthew right matthew the tax collector we talked about him before jesus is walking down the street and he sees a man named levi on the side of the road at a tax booth right you with me give me a little head nod you're with me you're you're following the, the story here matthew or levi is at the tax booth and jesus with his disciples says Levi, come and follow me. Grace reaches out to a tax collector. If you remember, in the Bible, every time they talk about sinners and tax collectors, they don't group tax collectors in with sinners because sinners were worse than tax collectors. It was considered, uh, it was considered mean to lump the tax collectors in with the sinners. So like they were too bad to be part of the group. We do the same sort of thing, too. Most people who don't believe in God or are on the outskirts of the church, they believe that most people are going to heaven, but then you have Hitler and Stalin and those guys who are kind of the worst of the worst. That's kind of how the Jews regarded the tax collectors. So you got all the people that are bad, and you got those on top of it. And so he says, hey, Levi, come follow me. Grace reaches out to him. The law says, stop what you're doing and follow me. Grace gives Levi a new name. You all know him by Matthew. Grace gives them a new name. And then the disciples are kind of like, Jesus, what gives? Uh, We can't be seen with this guy because our reputations will be shot if we're seen with the tax collector in our group. What are we going to do? And Jesus says, well, hold on to your pants because it's going to get worse. We're fixing to go to Matthew's house. And Matthew's having a party and all of his tax collecting friends are going to be there. And so Grace goes to the party 
with the tax collectors and reaches out to those tax collectors also. And so the law people are at the party. And they go, Jesus, you, you can't associate with those people. You can't be who you say you are and have anything to do with those people. And Jesus tells them a, a phrase that you all remember. He says, I haven't come to save those who are healthy. I've come to seek and save the sick. The sick don't, the, the well don't need a hospital. It's the unwell that need a hospital. And I'm a hospital for sinners, he says. And so you've got this perfect balance of grace and law, and it only gets better and better. You've got Jesus is nailed to the cross in between what we've always called two thieves. Well, they don't just crucify thieves. They crucify the worst of the worst, right? Just because you're a thief doesn't mean you get crucified. Most of the times, if you're a Roman, oh, excuse me, they didn't crucify Romans. But what they would do is they would take any of the people who were breaking the law and they'd put them in a Roman ship, make them row the boat, or they'd put them in a mine and make them work the mine. They'd find some sort of use for these slaves, I guess you could call them. And so Jesus is in between the worst of the worst. And this guy on this side goes, hey, Jesus, you saved all those other people. Why don't you save yourself? And the other thief sticks up for him. And he says, hey, man, leave that guy alone. We deserve what we're getting. He doesn't deserve any of this. And what does Jesus do? If Jesus was all grace, he would go, hey, man, stop being so hard on yourself. It's okay. You're a good person. Your, your heart's in the right place. What does Jesus say? This guy readily admits, hey, man, leave him alone. We're getting exactly what we deserve. The fella is nailed to a cross being tortured and says, man, we're getting exactly what we deserve. And Jesus is there silent, and he's like, yeah, you're not going to get any argument out of me. You're pretty much getting exactly what you deserve. That's the law. And then Jesus tells the guy, but today you'll be with me in paradise. And so the law acknowledges the man's yes. You're getting exactly what you deserve. And Jesus says, but my grace is, is that today when this whole thing is over with, about 20 minutes from now, you're going to be with me in paradise. And so Jesus never just brings law without bringing grace as well because he's both. With Jesus, you don't get law or grace. You get both always, filled up to the measure. You following me? It keeps going and going and going. But you look at the thief on the cross and you go, well, that's not fair. It's not fair that that guy just seems to get grace. And a couple pages earlier in the story, you've got a rich young ruler who comes to Jesus. And Jesus says, if you want to follow me, you've got to sell everything you have, give it to the poor. Then you come follow me and you'll have riches in heaven. And so on one hand, you have a guy who's got to sell everything, come to Jesus. And then on the other hand, you got a guy who throws a Hail Mary and gets in at the last second. And you go, that is not fair at all. And I told you that all grace and all truth or all law is messy. You see, what do we like? We like, and I'm not criticizing anything, we like policies. We like flow charts. Come on. Most of you have jobs where if you come up on any given situation you and they ask yes or no, did you commit a violation? Yes. Okay, now you're in this category. And it doesn't matter why you did it. It's yes or no, and you move into this category regardless, right? Okay. And then you ask another question. Did you do this, this, or this? Yes or no? And there's a definitive answer, and you follow that flow chart out wherever it goes. Flow charts and policies have zero room for grace. 
It's all truth. And you get whatever punishment is coming your way at the end of the flow chart. Jesus says to the guy on the cross, you're getting exactly what you deserve. But in the midst of you getting exactly what you deserve, I'm going to pour out my grace on you. And today you'll be with me in paradise. And so why does he treat the rich young ruler so different? You see, the difference between the rich young ruler and the thief on the cross is that the rich young ruler comes to Jesus pridefully and says, teacher, what do I have to do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, keep the law. And the rich young ruler is like, yes, I've done that. And the rich young ruler is filled with pride because he has done everything that he needs to do. And whenever someone comes to Jesus in a prideful fashion, like they are okay, everything is okay in my life, I'm in need of nothing, Jesus always speaks to them sternly. And in the midst of speaking to them sternly, he always tells them what they need to do to receive grace. And then you have the situation of a guy on the cross He can't go anywhere. He can't rededicate his life. He doesn't even have really the option to sin at this time. The guy's in torment, and he's going to be dead in 20 minutes. He's in now. It just doesn't seem fair. So why does he get grace and the other doesn't? The guy on the cross realizes that he's sinned and that he's in need of God to intervene in his life. And God says, that's the exact thing that I'm going to do for you. And so people who have a broken spirit get all sorts of grace from God. But the prideful and the boastful people, they get nothing from God. With me? And so that is one way that you bring all of grace and truth on a given situation. Someone who's prideful and arrogant in their sin, the last thing they need is grace. Why? Because everything's not okay. If you're living in sin, you're not okay. And I'm sorry that you don't have someone in your life to love you enough to tell you that you living in your sin is not okay. And so Jesus brings all of the law to, to, to the present situation to tell them, listen, if you keep going about life in the way that you're doing it, destruction is coming your way. But Jesus loves them enough and shows them enough grace to tell them the truth. Because if the rich young ruler doesn't sell everything he have and give it, has and give it to the poor... He's proving that he loves his things more than he loves his God. And Jesus obviously seems to be the first person in his life to have enough grace and love for the man to tell him that you're not okay the way you are. But the cool thing about Jesus is when he tells him what he has to do to get right, he gives him a way to receive grace. You keep going. You go over to John chapter 8. We're going to read a little bit of this one. John chapter 8. The Pharisees try to trap Jesus, right? They bring up this woman who's been caught in adultery. So here's a woman who's been caught red-handed in adultery. I don't know how you go about doing this. I don't know what their scheme was. But anyways, a group of men say, we got her. And they march her out there to Jesus. The sad thing is, is they never tell you where the guy is. They just let him go. That's a tall tale sign of cowards. Where you hold the weaker party accountable and you let the powerful person go, right? You only hold the woman accountable, let the other one go. Coward. You with? Everybody got that? Coward. So they bring this woman to Jesus and they say, Jesus, the law of Moses says stone this woman. What do you say? Jesus could have said, the Roman law says you don't have the authority to stone her. That would have shut him up real quick. But Jesus says, okay, I'll play your game. Why don't Those of you here who are without sin, why don't you throw the first rock at her? 
because the law says that she should be killed. And so Jesus says, okay, go ahead, stone her. But only those of you with no sin, stone her. And slowly, Jesus begins to write in the sand, and they begin to leave one by one, one by one. And then it says in John chapter 8, verse 10, and this is Jesus, it says, Jesus, straightening up, said to her, woman, where are they? Did no one condemn you? Jesus looks around. Nobody's here. Tells the woman, where's, where's everyone that condemns you? They're gone. She said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said to her, I do not condemn you either. That's grace. Go from here, and from now on, sin no more. That's the law. And so Jesus comes into a situation where a woman should be stoned. And he brings the full weight of grace and the full weight of the law in one. He's all of truth and grace. And he comes to the woman and he tells her, I don't condemn you. Go and sin no more. And so Jesus never pardons anyone without addressing the sin issue. But he pardons. And then as a result of being pardoned, he tells her, go and sin no more. And if you're here and you've been saved, that's what happened to you. When you came to Christ, you didn't come to Christ, get down on your knees and pray, and him beat the fool out of you for ten minutes until he got everything out of his system. When you came to Christ, most of you probably came to Christ because you were overwhelmed that there was a God who loves you and cares about you and sent his son to die on the cross for your sins. And you were so overwhelmed with a sense of grace and forgiveness that you had to come to Christ. He wooed you through his love and forgiveness. And that weight was lifted off your shoulders. Hopefully you remember of all that sin that you used to carry. And then when you got up, he didn't say... Da, 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 da. He said, go and sin no more. And then when you sinned again, because all of us did, all of us hopefully were saved, and then we fell into sin again, when you came back to him, he didn't come to you and beat you down. He came to you and forgave you again. And what did he say? Go and sin no more. And then when it happened again, if you were like me, it's a continual thing. It just keeps happening and happening and happening. And you went and you fell into sin again, and he forgave you again. And then he said, go and sin no more. So how is it that Jesus can seemingly overlook your sin on one hand and then address your sin and tell you to quit doing it also? And how can he not condemn you for sin? And the reason he can do it is because he paid for it. And so he acknowledges your sin. Yes, you sinned, but I paid for it. And now I don't condemn you for your sin. And that's the great thing about Christ. Is that in every given situation, he brings all of the law and he brings all of grace to every single situation. And so whenever you come up with anything, any situation that could ever happen in the church, and he said, well, what do you do about this situation? Whenever you come up with any decision you have to make you have to if you're going to love like jesus loved you've got to bring all of grace and all of the law into that given situation and i'm going to tell you how it works out of the book of romans you don't have to turn there but over in the book of romans chapter 8 there's a really encouraging verse in romans chapter 8 verse 1 it says therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in christ jesus that means that if you're in christ jesus you are condemned no more because the blood of jesus christ covered all of your sin. So you will not be condemned for anything as a result of Christ's atonement. You with me? 
Give me a little head nod again. All right. And then you could think, okay, well, since there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, I can live however I want to. And so Paul addresses it. And he says, should you go on sinning so that Christ's grace will abound? And he goes, no, that's foolishness that you should ever do such a thing. And you get over to the book of Romans chapter 12. So now we've gone from chapter 8 to chapter 12. And in Romans chapter 12, he says, therefore. And that means as a result of everything in Romans 1 through 11. As a result of all of your condemnation being taken away by Christ. He says, now as a result of that. Therefore, by the mercy of God, I urge you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. And so he says, because... You're not condemned for your sin. The rest of your life should be given as a living sacrifice to God. And he goes on in 12, 13, 14, and to the end of the book of Romans, telling you how you should live as a result of the grace that's been given to you. You see, a legalistic church says, Romans 12, through the end of the book of Romans, you need to do all those things. And you need, to, you need to do all of the rules so that you can look like us because Jesus looks like us. And a liberal church says, don't worry about it. It's okay. We're all good. You're good. I'm good. God's grace covers everything. And that's a liberal church. Hopefully our church says, yes, God forgave you for everything. And ever as a result of God forgiving you for everything and you being okay, you then need to look like Jesus as a result. And so you're not balancing between the two, but you're all of both of them. And this is difficult. And so let me give you a kind of a real life illustration of how this thing works out in real life. So about five, it might have been five years ago now, I'm a youth pastor. And uh, there's this girl who's dating this boy. They're real serious, right? They've both uh, just graduated from high school, and they're super serious between the two of them. She's saved, and she found him somewhere, and he wasn't saved, right? You know the situation? And so now you've got uh, uh, this church girl who's saved, and she's dating this boy that she shouldn't have been dating. Listen, I like the guy, but she shouldn't have been dating him. And so they're dating, 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 and one day... She calls me and says, hey, pastor, we need to meet. No problem, let's meet. So she shows up in my office, boyfriend in tow, mom and dad in tow also, and she's crying. And before I shut the door, I was like, oh gosh, I know exactly what has happened. Because there's nothing new under the sun. And so she says, Pastor Bobby, I got to tell you, she says, I'm pregnant. And my first thought was, duh, <laughs> anybody would have known that, but it's sad. She's pregnant. What do you do? How do you be all of the law and all of grace to this girl at the same time? First thing I said to that girl, congratulations. Congratulations. That baby is going to be a gift from God and is precious in God's sight. That girl was crying in my office and she had no need of a hand slap. She knew what she had done was wrong. She absolutely knew what she was done was wrong. And if I would have fussed at that young lady, it would have drove her away. But instead, we forgave her. 
She didn't need to know that sex outside of marriage was a bad thing. She didn't need to know at that point that what she had done was wrong. There was no way that that girl could go back and make anything right. The only thing she could do was from here on out make the right decision. And so she started crying even more after we said congratulations because she said, I thought you were going to throw me out of the church. To which I said, why in the world would I throw you out of the church when now is when you need the church the absolute most? And she looked at me and she said, well, what do we do now? I said, well, are y'all living together now? She said, yeah, we are. I said, well, you need to, to get out of this situation. She said, well, he doesn't have anywhere to live. How do you bring all of grace and all of law into a situation like that? I said, we've got an extra room at my house. You want to make things right? You got to get away from each other. So if you want to make things right, he moves in with, to me with my house. Well, when does he do it? Well, he does it right now. Like when we leave this building, he goes and packs his bags. And if you want to really do things right, he moves in with me. You see, that's all grace. And that's all law coming to bear on that situation. And so the story goes, he moves into my house. And then a week later, the two of them get married. And they get married the right way. Because all of law and all of grace came to bear on a situation. They repented of a situation. Then they didn't just repent of a situation and keep doing whatever they wanted to do. They repented of a situation and then they made things right. They went and they sinned no more. And they made the situation right. And that's how you bring sin, or that's how you bring law and grace to a given situation. That's messy, isn't it? That's messy. That's not normal. That's messy. There's been other times where I've talked to people. They've come into my office and they said, what do we do about this given situation? And there's been multiple times where as a Christian, listen, not as a pastor, as a Christian, I've had to offer my house for someone to come and stay at so that they could get out of a sinful situation. Because sin says, shame on you. And grace says, I've got an extra room that can get you out of this situation. And if you really want to be Jesus, you've got to be both. You've got to be someone who's not afraid to call sin, sin. And you've got to be someone who's not afraid to get their hands dirty and make hard decisions to help someone get out of sin. Anybody can come along and be condemning. Disciples come along and reach out their hand. And if we're going to be the type of people that Christ has called us to, we've got to be people who are willing to lead lives and get messy. Because Jesus never was black and white on anything. Whenever Jesus walked up to a situation, it, you, you read your New Testament and you'll go, he'll walk into a situation and you'll go, man, wonder what he's going to do this time. And he always brings truth and grace to every situation. And brothers and sisters, that's exactly who we have got to be. We don't go around judging everybody. We don't go around giving everybody a free pass. We just have to love each other like Jesus loved each other. And that entails forgiving people. That entails showing grace to people. And that also entails holding people accountable for their sin. And that's who we've got to be. Because anybody can be a Christian, right? 
But loving each other like Jesus loved people, that's a whole different ball of wax. So maybe you're here and you've never experienced that sort of love from Christ. I would love to introduce you to a God who says, I don't condemn you, but I forgive you. Go and sin no more. Maybe you're here and you're a Christian who's been caught up in sin. And your sin is hard to get out of. We're going to be Jesus. And we're going to forgive you. And we're not going to condemn you. We just love you enough to see you leave your life of sin and lead a life that's godly. And so if you want to make any sort of decision during our time of invitation, the altar is open. If you want to come down here and pray for anyone during this time of invitation, you're welcome to do that also. But let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you for your son, Jesus Christ. Father, we thank you that when we come to you with a broken heart, you don't beat us down, but rather you forgive us. And you don't just forgive us and hold it against us, but you forgive us and then you set us free from it. Lord, you don't continue to condemn us, but you tell us that if we're in Christ Jesus, we're free from any condemnation. And Lord, we also thank you so much that you don't just pour out grace and grace and grace and ignore our sin, but that you make us deal with our sin so that we can live lives that are pleasing to you. And so, Lord, I pray that we would be the type of church to offer always a full measure of both grace and truth at any given situation. Lord, the only way that we can do that successfully as a church is if we're walking with you and you're leading us along the way. Because to offer grace and truth in the same sentence is foreign to us, and we need your help. So, Lord, I pray that you would guide us. Lord, I pray that if there's anyone here who needs to uh, make things right with you, I pray that they would do it. And if there's anyone here who has never met you and never experienced that forgiveness that you have to offer, I pray today would be the day they do it. That's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. If you would stand for our hymn of invitation.